0: And your Bible should be open to the first chapter of Matthew. So let's bow our head before we begin. Our gracious Father, we desire that the clear teaching of Your Word might take precedent over and bring our hearts into submission to it. We pray that it would be uh, that it would rule over our hearts and that our thinking and our theology, our practice, might never be according to the dictates of our own conscience or mind or rationality or reason, but according to the clear teaching of Scripture. So we pray that you send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide this morning. And may we receive joy and have our hearts filled with adoration as we joyfully submit to the teaching of your word. It is our desire and we pray that it might be so here amongst your people for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter one, we're going to be taking a look at a familiar passage of scripture this morning. Uh, This is uh, we worked our way through this Matthew chapter one. Uh, as a family, about four weeks ago, we started going through the book of Matthew, and we have a little uh, a little rotation in our family that once we finish studying a book or reading through and looking at a book together, we the next kid in line, age-wise, gets to determine what the next book is going to be. So, at the rate that we go through books, you can probably guess that each kid gets to pick basically one book in their lifetime that they we get to go through before we end up they end up leaving the home. And so it was Liam's choice to go through the book of Matthew. So we went through chapter one uh, a few weeks ago. And when we got done going through that, I thought to myself, that would be a, a good passage to go through with the students in student ministries and youth group for the Christmas party. So that's what I did about two weeks ago with uh, my kids again. They got to go through it a second time and we took the student ministries through it. And when I got done going through the passage with the students and the student ministries for the youth group, I thought to myself, it would be a good passage to go through. On a Sunday morning. So this is my third time through this passage. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, if this is your third time going through this, this should be really good. As I told my wife before we got married, if you keep your expectations low, I promise not to disappoint. And that is is the thing for the Sunday morning, too. Keep your expectations low and I promise not to disappoint. This is a familiar passage of Scripture. And since we don't have the benefit of having gone through a lot of the themes and the introduction and sort of setting up the context, I, I need to do that with you. Because uh, we're going through John and not through Matthew. And uh, the, the intention and the goal of every gospel writer is unique and it's different. And so I need to kind of give you a few things to sort of set the context before we jump in at verse 18 of chapter 1. Let me give you a few a few things to keep in mind. First, Matthew is one of two gospels that give a, an account of the birth of our Lord. One of two gospels. The other one is Luke. And that's the familiar passage uh, in Luke chapter 2. Mark does not give an account of the birth of the Lord, and neither does John, each for their own unique reasons. But Matthew and Luke do. And the genealogies, and by the way, there are only two gospels that give genealogies of the Lord Jesus. One of them is Matthew, and one of them is Luke. And that is, each genealogy reflects the unique emphasis of each of the different, of those two gospels. The second thing to keep in mind is that Matthew is demonstrating Jesus' messianic credentials. He's demonstrating the Messianic credentials of Jesus. And Matthew has a unique uh, perspective compared to all of the other four Gospels. And you could say that about all four of the Gospels. When Matthew writes, Matthew intends to show us that Jesus is the son of David, a descendant of Abraham, that he is a Jew, that he is the rightful heir to David's throne, that he is the king of Israel, and that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that the Old Testament anticipated, that he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that he is the fulfillment of the covenant made to David, and that he, as a descendant of David, has a rightful, uh, a rightful claim to the throne of David as the king of Israel. That's Matthew's goal. And you see that even in the genealogy that Matthew gives. If you read through the genealogy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, you see that Matthew traces Jesus' lineage from Abraham through David down to Joseph. Uh, and through Joseph legally, that's the legal des- descent of Jesus. But he traces it through David in order to show that this one who showed up and claimed to be the Messiah had a rightful claim to the throne of David, that he was, in fact, a descendant of David. So Matthew portrays Jesus as a king. That's Matthew's unique vantage point. And all that he records, the teachings, the, the fulfillments of Scripture, and all of that is intended to show to his audience that this is the king of Israel. Mark has a little bit of a different perspective. Mark portrays Jesus as a servant. So when you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see the word immediately all the time. Jesus went here and he did this immediately. And he went here and he said this immediately. And this happened immediately. In Mark's Gospel, Mark portrays Jesus as the humble servant who came to do everything the Father gave him to do, to serve the Father, to serve other people. So in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is the servant. Luke portrays Jesus in his manhood, which is why Luke in his genealogy traces the lineage of Jesus back from Joseph through, legally Joseph, not physically, you understand that, Um, from Joseph through David to Abraham, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Because what Luke is intending to show us is that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, was himself rooted in humanity. His lineage goes all the way back to the very first person, Adam. That's Luke's intention. And so Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. And John, as we have seen, emphasizes the deity of Jesus. So that on every page in every discourse and in every miracle and all of Jesus' teaching in everything that we see in the Gospel of John, we have seen that this one is the Son of God. He is the great I am, equal to the Father, co-substantial with the Father, co-eternal. He pre-existed. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son in his full deity. So you can see how each of these kind of gives a different perspective on the person of Christ. In Matthew, he is king. In Mark, he is servant. In Luke, he is man. And in John, he is God. So we can say of Jesus Christ that he is the God-man who is the servant king. See how all of that comes together? That is a perfect portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Gospels, we have four, not contradictory, but complementary viewpoints on the person of Jesus. And you look at they're, they're not contradicting each other, they're not competing with each other. They are looking, as it were, at, at, at like a precious jewel viewed from four different vantage points, and you see a different element of beauty every time you look at it. That's how the Gospel writers see the Lord Jesus. Matthew is intending to establish Jesus' Messianic credentials, as the king of Israel. Third, Matthew wants to show us that the life and the ministry and eventually the death of the Lord Jesus Christ are all fulfillments of Old Testament Scripture. Now, Matthew was a Jew. He is writing a Jewish gospel with a Jewish flavor to a Jewish audience intending to show us that this Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Jewish prophets. So that is Matthew's flavor. It's it's Jewishness. And he is intending to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which is why Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than 60 times in his gospel. He, pro- he had a prolific and a, and, a, and a thorough understanding of Old Testament Scripture. And as Matthew observed the life of Jesus and recorded, the, his, from his perspective, the life and ministry of Jesus, he sees it fulfilling Scripture all the time. And you see all these scripture, uh, scriptural quotations in Matthew when Matthew records it and our translations, capitalize the references to the Old Testament. I just want to point out to you a couple of them just surrounding the birth and early life of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 23, you'll see that Matthew quotes Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel," which translated means God with us. Down in chapter 2, verse 6, Matthew quotes Micah 5, verse 2 in reference to the fact that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd My people Israel. And that's Micah 5, verse 2. Down in chapter 2, verse 15, you see the reference there to a passage in Hosea where Matthew quotes Hosea, Out of Egypt I called My Son, referring to that Scripture being fulfilled when Joseph was told to flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. And then Herod, of course, coming in and not finding Jesus, but killing all of the children two years old and younger. Matthew quotes down in verse 18, a passage from Jeremiah about the weeping of the women. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So you see what Matthew is doing? We have four quotations, even in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And we see Matthew quoting, uh, portraying Jesus as quoting Scripture. We see Matthew quoting Scripture to show that what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and all that happened to him were all fulfillments of the Old Testament. So that's Matthew's emphasis. He wants to establish for us and prove to us and to any Jews who might be expecting their Messiah that this one who has come is in fact the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and predictions. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types and shadows. He is the fulfillment of all of the Jewish hope and expectation for a Messiah. He fulfills it all. That's Matthew's goal. Now, we're going to be looking at, specifically, the prophecy given in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah that Matthew quotes in verse 23. We're going to also be taking in all of this context beginning at verse 18. We're going to go all the way through the end of verse 25 this morning. And we're going to see the virgin virgin birth presented in Matthew from three different vantage points or three different, uh, three different emphasis in this passage. And all three of them are here. We're going to see the virgin birth as a historical event as a redemptive event, and as a prophetic event. It is a historical event, it is a redemptive event, and it is a prophetic event. And all three of those are borne out in this passage. So, let us begin at verse 18. We'll start working our way through the entire passage. Verse 18, let me get back to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I need to stop here for just a moment and set up a little bit of the context and explain what is going on here. The first thing I want you to observe is that what Matthew is recording here is recorded as if it is literal historical fact. Matthew is not transitioning from a genealogy, verses 1 through 17, which any Jew would have been able to go into the temple and verify whether the lineage was true or not. It wasn't transitioning from a genealogy and literal historical record of people living and dying and begetting. Now, to some myth or fantasy or mystical thing or some legend that he borrows from pagan sources or pagan mysticism. Matthew records this as if it is literal historical fact. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. And what follows is a historical narrative. This is historical fact. Matthew is not borrowing from Greek mythology. He's not borrowing from legend. He's not creating this out of thin air. He's not inventing this to make more out of Jesus than we should make out of him. Matthew is recording for us what literally happened in history as it unfolded and as it happened. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and you'll notice that Joseph is not called the father of Jesus in this passage. In fact, nowhere in Scripture is Joseph called the physical father of Jesus. Anywhere. Jesus is referred to as Joseph's son because Joseph took Jesus as his own child and raised him as such and adopted him as it were. But he was never, he is never called the physical father of Jesus. But Mary is the physical father of Jesus, which is why Matthew can say of Mary that she is the mother of Jesus. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now this betrothal is something different than what we think of in terms of an engagement, an official engagement. Let me describe to you the differences between how Jews treated and viewed marriage and the process and how we, well, I don't need to explain to you how we treat and view the process of marriage and engagement, because we're familiar with that, but you may not be familiar with how the Jews did R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, writes this, quote, In Jewish law, betrothal, which lasted about one year, was much more than our engagement. It was a binding contract, terminable only by death, which left the betrothed a widow, or by a divorce, as for a full marriage. The man was already considered the husband, but the woman remained in her father's house. The marriage was completed when the husband took the betrothed to his home in a public ceremony. So this would take place over a long period of time, usually a little bit more than a year or around a year. And a Jewish marriage would happen in two phases. Here's how this would work out. First, there was the betrothal of the the husband and the wife, the betrothal. So it's kind of like engagement, but far more serious uh, and far more binding. The betrothal was often worked out between the parents of the groom and the parents of the bride. And it was often worked out without consulting either the bride or the groom. So it was an, an arranged marriage, which, to be honest with you, I've been warming up to in recent years. The idea of an arranged marriage. <laughs> there was a dowry that was paid by the groom's, uh, to the groom's family by the family of the bride. And this dowry would be taken by the bride's family in payment for their daughter as a bride. I've been warming up to that idea as well in recent years, though I'm somewhat split on it, as you can well imagine. When I think of my daughters, I think it's a good idea. When I think of my sons, I don't think it's all that good of an idea. And then I think of my next daughter, and it's a good idea. And then I think of my youngest son, and it's not such a good idea. So I'm a little bit back and forth on that as well. Though I have to say that, (laughs) though I have to say that I do think that my daughters are far more valuable than anybody else's daughters. So if we had a dowry system, I think I would come out to the plus on that arrangement. So the dowry was paid by the the wife's the the the, the bride's family uh, dad to the groom's father. This was considered a down payment on the relationship and the betrothal. When that happened, the bride and the groom were considered for all intents and purposes married, but there would be no physical contact between them. So the marriage was not consummated with any kind of physical intimacy. This there would then be a break, a period of time of several months, most likely close to a year, during which the bride and the groom would not see each other. They would have no physical contact. They would have no social contact. They would be isolated from one another. The, the wife, or the, the, the bride-to-be, she would stay in her father's house uh, there, and the husband would go away, and he would prepare for her a place. And then he would come back to get her. There would be a public ceremony, an exchanging of vows and a public ritual, there would be a wedding feast, and then the husband would take the, the the groom would take his new bride back to the place that he had prepared for her, and there and then only would the marriage ceremony and, and betrothal be consummated. Now, to break off that betrothal was considered as as tragic and as severe as a divorce or a death. That was the only thing that could could break a betrothal in the Jewish custom. You didn't just say, "Well, you know, the ring doesn't fit," and give it back. The purpose of that period of time between the betrothal and the actual wedding ceremony, the period of that the purpose of that period of time was to demonstrate the purity of this woman. Right? To make sure that she had not been involved with anybody prior to the engagement, to be sure that she had, was not involved with anybody during the engagement, and if there had been any impropriety before this, this would become manifest during the betrothal period of time. Now, you can see how the Jewish custom of betrothing and marriage is very similar to what we see unfolding in God's redemptive plan. The father gave to the son a people chosen for him by the father, gave those people to his son without consulting you and I. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He arranged this. The father did. The son came into the world to pay the price for his bride, the church. What was the price that he paid? His own blood. He died on behalf of His bride. That was the price that He paid. Then He left to go and prepare a place for us. And He will come again and what? Receive us unto Himself, that where He is there we may be also. And everlastingly so. And Do you see how what God has done in redemption is is portrayed in that picture, in that Jewish picture of the marriage ceremony? How beautiful that is and how lovely that is. And so we are now in that time when we are waiting for the, the bridegroom to come back. He received us unto himself and to take us to be where he is, to the place that he has prepared for us, as he promised in John chapter 14 before he left. Okay, so that's how this would all unfold in a Jewish context. Now, during this period of time, in the betrothal period, before Joseph and Mary had come together, so this happens before the actual public ceremony, when there is the exchanging of vows and he comes through to get her, during that period of time, Mary was found to be with child. Now, during that period of time is probably when she visited her cousin Elizabeth, recorded in Luke chapter 1. And when she went to visit Elizabeth, she was already, Mary was already with child. That had been revealed to Mary already. She was with Elizabeth for three months period of time. And when Mary came back from visiting Elizabeth, back to, uh, back to Galilee where she lived, it would have become obvious to everywhere, everybody that Mary was pregnant. But Matthew records for us that this conception, this pregnancy, was the result of the Holy Spirit And not the result of her Mary having known a man. Five times in this passage, the virginity of Mary and her purity and the fact that she had not known a man is emphasized. You'll see it in verse 18. It was before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's another emphasis of the fact that this this conception, this birth is something supernatural. It is unique. Look down in verse 20. Verse 20. Uh, Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the angel telling Joseph that what has happened here is not due to her impurity, but that the Holy Spirit created this in the womb of Mary. Verse 23 is the quotation from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And then in verse 25, it says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to the son and he called his name Jesus. So five times in the passage, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasized. Now, during that period of time when Mary had gone away to be with Elizabeth and then she had come back and it became obvious after a period of time that she was indeed pregnant, that she was with child, this would have become known obviously to her, to her immediate family, and it eventually became known to Joseph. Now Joseph did what every righteous man would have done. And what is, a, what is about to be described here is no indication of a lack of character or godliness in Joseph whatsoever. Look at verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, And not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph did what any righteous man in that period of time would have done. He saw that the woman that he had been betrothed to was pregnant and with child. And Joseph assumed what every single man in this room would have assumed under similar circumstances, that Mary's pregnancy was not the result of the Holy Spirit conceiving something in Mary, but that she had been unfaithful in some respect, and had now been impregnated. That She had been in some sort of a relationship with some man somewhere. Joseph would have assumed what is most natural to assume. And notice the scripture says he was a righteous man and so he was going to put her away, and that's the word that is often translated in the New Testament for divorce. He was going to divorce her. He was going to give her a certificate of divorce and do what he had every right to do when he found that his bride-to-be had been unfaithful, that is, to cancel the betrothal a ceremony, the betrothal agreement and to basically divorce her and put her away. That was what he had a right to do and that is what he was going to do because he assumed what all of us would assume and what was proper to assume. He was a righteous man. He's not doing this because he is vindictive. He's not doing this because he is bitter. In fact, he is doing this because, doing this, this way because he loved Mary. He did not want to disgrace her publicly so he was going to put her away privately meaning he was going to divorce her with no fanfare. Now in that culture, in that context, Joseph could have gone to the elders of the city and made this a public issue. He could have, he could have uh, published this to the entire city or village if he had wanted to and said, I have betrothed this woman and, and we inked the deal, her parents and my parents, and this was supposed to be what it was, and we have not come together, and yet here she is, she is pregnant. And you could have publicly divorced her and brought charges against her, which, under Old Testament law, Mary could have been stoned for her infidelity and her impurity. Or her activity. Because in that context and in that culture, they valued sexual purity. Now, you may think that this is is prudish and that this is archaic and this is puritanical and it's horrible. But listen, if I had to choose between our culture, which is so ripe with sexual immorality and perversions of every kind, where people think of nothing but satiating their own lusts, if I have to choose between that and the culture in which Mary and Joseph lived, I would choose the culture in which Mary and Joseph lived a hundred times to zero. They valued sexual purity. And so these were the the parameters that were in place in order to, to give Joseph an out and to punish Mary had everything been what normally would have been under those circumstances, barring the virgin birth. And so Joseph was going to put her away secretly so that she wouldn't be stoned, so that she wouldn't be shamed. He was just going to back out. He was going to do so quietly. He had every right to publish it. He had every right to be public about it. But he was a righteous man, he was a vindictive man, he was a godly and a God-fearing man. And so he did what he did because the way that he did it, or he was intending to do so, because of his love for Mary. Verse 20. But when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be, af- don't be afraid. Don't fear that she has been unfaithful. Don't fear that what has happened here is any mark upon your character or upon her character. He was not to fear taking her as his wife. Uh, oh, verse 19. You'll notice that Joseph has called her husband, even though they hadn't come together yet. Why is that? Because in the betrothal period, he was considered her husband, even though they had not come together yet. Because the betrothal period and the betrothal arrangement was as solid and as significant as the marriage ceremony itself. It was all part of that. So Joseph could be called her husband, even though the ceremony had not taken place and he had not taken her to himself yet. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared with a revelation saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is a miraculous, a miraculous birth, a miraculous conception. Now, I understand scientifically, biologically, how this happens in the normal realm uh, around us all of the time. I, I understand genetically how that happens. But, When I think of the conception inside the womb of a mother and how that happens and how that unfolds, I cannot help but think of Psalm 31, that we are knit together in the innermost parts in our mother's womb and that there is something there that is mysterious. It is beyond mere biology. It is miraculous how one cell ends up producing hearts and brains and lungs and muscles and tendons and fibers and bones and all of that. How one cell produces, and how does it know to do that? Where is that programmed into the DNA of a single cell? How does that happen? How does that unfold? That to me is miraculous. Now, it is no leap at all for me to understand that this type of, I I don't want to call it miracle because it's not a, a suspension of natural law, but this type of supernatural, marvelous creation happens every day on this planet. It's no leap for me to go from that to this happened miraculously by conception of the Holy Spirit. That is a small leap for my mind to make. Now this is Christian teaching, the virgin birth of Jesus. You'll notice five times in this passage we read language that emphasizes that Christ was born of a virgin. Matthew affirms this, that this is Christian teaching. Matthew affirms this. Luke affirms the virgin birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1 when he writes in verse 26, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. To a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, Luke confirms or affirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. Even Old Testament prophecy, in fact, the very first mention of a Messiah anywhere in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the garden, affirmed that, the, the, that this birth of the Messiah would be something unique, something outside of or apart from the natural flow of human history, something supernatural about it when... God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your, you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To refer to a child of anybody as being the seed of the woman. You don't say that. You don't say the seed of the woman. But for God to reveal to Adam and Eve that eventually there would be one born who would conquer the serpent, who would be the seed of the woman, That is not language or phraseology that you use. It's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament of anybody, that anybody would be the seed of the woman. You don't speak in those terms. You speak of the seed of the man, you speak of the descendant of the man, but not of the seed of the woman. And so even in the very first reference to the Messiah, we have there a picture or an allusion to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there would be a seed implanted in her, but that it would be something unique and something different than the normal flow of human events in human history. And then, of course, we have the prophecy in Isaiah 7, verse 14, that promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. That is Christian doctrine. Now, of course, skeptics and atheists and agnostics and liberals and people who think that they're smarter than God and smarter than Scripture like to doubt the virgin birth of Jesus. And they like to say that this didn't actually happen, that this is just a mythology, that Matthew was really too stupid to put into words what actually happened here. And so he used language like this and that we have created this myth of the virgin birth. They reject the teaching because they don't like the idea that it's too supernatural for them. It's not reasonable. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense to them. And so they reject the teaching of the virgin birth of Christ. But the virgin birth is Christian doctrine. From the earliest years of the church, it was affirmed that Christ was born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. That is the Apostles' Creed, the earliest creeds. It has always been the confession of the true church of God, the Orthodox church of God, that Mary was a virgin when she conceived. She was, remained a virgin until after Jesus was born, and that Joseph took her to him as her as his uh, wife until she gave birth to a son, and she gave birth to a son that named him Jesus, and that Mary was a virgin. That is the, that is the teaching of the church that is affirmed orthodoxy, That is, in fact, Christian teaching. But people reject that because it's not reasonable or because it's not rational. And my answer to that would be, if the first four words of the Bible are true, in the beginning, God, if those four words are true, everything else in this book is reasonable and rational. Especially if the God that is spoken of in those first four words is the God that is described in Scripture, it's reasonable and it's rational. If God created everything out of nothing by the word of His mouth, if He spoke and it was created, if He uttered the words and it stood fast, and He established it and He laid the foundations of the heaven and the earth, if that God exists as He is portrayed in Scripture, and if that God has spoken and if that God has created, then everything else that follows it follows it. Serpent appearing, uh, Satan appearing as a serpent, angels appearing in human flesh. Donkeys talking, seas parting, manna falling from heaven. All of the rest of it is reasonable and rational. It is only when scripture is not your authority and you refuse to submit yourself to what is clearly revealed in scripture that you have to walk away and say, well, we're not quite sure if this really happened the way that it is recorded or not. I prefer rather than assuming that I'm smart enough to edit God and tell him what he did and did not do to simply affirm that the testimony of scripture is that Christ was born of a virgin. And since Matthew has said that, and since Luke has said that, and the Holy Spirit considered that worthy of putting down on the paper, I am fine with affirming the very same thing. We are not smarter than God. So we affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It is a literal historical event, and it unfolded just as follows here, that Matthew recorded and that Luke recorded in Luke chapter 2. Now, it is not only an historical event. Second, it is a redemptive event. It's a redemptive event. Look at the promise in verse 21, and we're going to return to this on Thursday night for our Christmas Eve service Uh, Verse 21, briefly, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to notice how the redemption and the salvation of God's people is tied into the virgin birth. Listen to this carefully. Those two things are inseparable. They're inseparable. Without a virgin birth, there is no salvation. There can be no salvation, which is why Matthew, in this context, is giving to us the details of the virgin birth, and he says, here is God's aim in it. You will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. This is in a redemptive context. This is a historical event that has a redemptive significance. And apart from its redemptive significance, there's no reason for a virgin birth. And without a virgin birth, there is no way you can get salvation. And here's why. If Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, then He is just another one in the long line of Adam's descendants. And he has, no, he has just as much sin as you and I have. You, you cannot consider him to be the sinless son of God if in fact he was born in the natural course of human events from Mary and Joseph as you and I were born of, of a, a husband and a wife or a man and a woman. If there is no virgin birth, there is no sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And if there is no sinlessness of Jesus Christ, then he has no more righteousness than you and I have. And our righteousness is this filthy right. Right. And if he has no more righteousness than you and I have, then he by certainly cannot give to me his righteousness, and he as a sinner cannot pay the price for my sin, since he himself was a sinner. So if there is no virgin birth, there's no sinlessness, there's no righteousness, and there's no atonement for sin. Our hope for salvation rests upon this. Our hope that he will save his people from their sins rests upon this foundation. He was born of a virgin. He was the sinless Son of God that he lived a righteous life, and he has righteousness to give to you and to me on the basis of faith, so that when I believe upon him, he takes my sin to himself, and he credits me with all of the righteousness that I need to stand in the presence of God and be considered and counted blameless for all of eternity. There can be no exchange of my sin for his righteousness if there is no virgin birth. If you doubt the virgin birth, then I ask you this. At what point in the narrative do you start believing? Start at verse 1 of chapter 1. When do you say, okay, this is reasonable enough for me to believe? This passes my smell test. At what point? That Mary is the name of his mother, that Joseph was the name of his father, that an angel appeared to Joseph, that he's the Savior? Let me ask you this. Why do you even believe and trust Him as your Savior if you don't believe that He was virgin born? On what basis? You say, well, because Scripture tells me He was the Savior. Scripture tells you He was born of a virgin too. So on what basis do you reject the one and accept the other? I'm arguing for the virgin birth and the belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ because it is essentially tied to our doctrine and understanding of redemption. Once you reject that Scripture is the authority over what I believe and what I don't believe, once you reject that, I will dismantle the rest of your thinking and show you that all it hangs on is the reasoning of your own mind and whatever you want to invent out of thin air. All we can ever go back to is what the Scriptures say. The Scripture says this, then I will gladly bow to knee to embrace this as true, And I will die for the virgin birth of Christ before I would deny that. Because to deny that is to deny the whole foundation of the promise of redemption that is in verse 21. So not only is it a historic event, it is a redemptive event. And third, it is a prophetic event. A prophetic event. You'll notice in verse 23 that Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There are two big issues that are raised by Matthew quoting that passage from Isaiah. In order to understand and see what those two issues are, I want you to turn briefly back to Isaiah chapter 7. I don't ask you to do this very often, but it's significant that you see this in its own context. So do you understand what the skeptics would say and how they would argue against the virgin birth of Christ? And you see it in its own context. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses. Actually, the first 15 verses. And then I will describe to you what these two issues are. Well, First, let me give you the first issue. The first issue that comes up with Matthew quoting Isaiah 7.14 is this. Some people say that what Isaiah is describing here has nothing to do with the Messiah whatsoever. So it is wrong for Matthew to quote Isaiah since Isaiah's prophecy and was fulfilled in the day that Isaiah wrote it. Okay, catch that. It was wrong for Matthew to quote this because what Isaiah prophesied was actually fulfilled during Isaiah's own lifetime. That's the first issue. So let's look at it and I'll show you why they say that. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So these two kings made an alliance. Rezan and Pekah made an alliance. King of Aram, the king of Israel. And they came up against Jerusalem to lay siege to Jerusalem to conquer Jerusalem. That was the goal. And they had an alliance between these two kings. Verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, that being the king who was in Jerusalem at the time, who was, uh, Ahaz was the king in Jerusalem at the time, when it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, shear Jashub at the end of the conduits of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him. Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. So, what Isaiah was told was go to Ahaz and say, Look, fear not. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be upset. Don't shake. Don't tremble over this. These two little firebrands, these two little burning sticks in the wilderness, don't fear these two men. Verse five, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So their intent was clear. They were going to breach the walls. They were going to come in, destroy Jerusalem, take it over and set up a king there and take over that whole southern kingdom. That was the goal. Verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass for the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it's no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you shall surely not last. So here was God's promise. It's not going to happen. All of that was a long way for God to say, look, I control the nations. Ephraim is going to be destroyed within 65 years. You should not fear these two kings because what they have intended is not going to come to pass. So don't worry. Don't panic. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. In other words, you want proof that what I'm saying is true? Ask for me a sign. I will do a miracle for you. I will give you some sign to evidence that what I'm saying to you is true. Make it as high as you want, as grand as you want, as low as you want, big as you want. Ask anything. Verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now that sounds righteous and godly, but that was not Ahaz's intention. Oh, I don't want to test God, that false humility. I don't want to assume that God can do this. I'll just, but he wasn't believing. And that's the point of the next few verses. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. It is a too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well. Right? Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask a sign, but he still was not believing. And God knew his heart. And so he says, it's too much that you would test me in this way. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and to choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So here was God's promise. You should not fear these two men because, and here's the sign, a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and he will eat curds and honey, which was a sign that they were in a time of national distress because curds is congealed milk. So it's kind of like our cottage cheese, but not nearly as tasty because they didn't have refrigeration. So it was sour. And if you got to the point where you're eating curded curd milk. It wasn't like you went down to the lighthouse factory and you had a real delicacy. It was that you were eating something that this was the one of the last things I could possibly eat and wild honey. So they were eating these curds and these wild honey, meaning that provisions would be very scarce. This would be a time of national distress. Why? Because the two kings had come against the city. And so this is what people would be forced to eat and how they would be forced to live. But he says this virgin will conceive and before the son who was born of her will be old enough to even choose good from evil. That these two kings and their land will be forsaken. And that's exactly what happened. Before this child, before two years had even passed from the time of this prophecy, these two kings and all of their alliance had dissolved and had gone away. And God had answered it. And Jerusalem had not fallen. So here's what the skeptic says. It appears as if Jer- Isaiah 7 verse 14 is speaking of something in Isaiah's day that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Because the sign was given to whom? Ahaz. Assuring Ahaz, here's the sign. A young woman will bear a child. A virgin will conceive. She will bear a child. Before that child is even two years old, these two kings will be forsaken. Now, if the intention of Isaiah is to give a sign that wouldn't come to pass for another 700 years, how is that a sign to Ahab? How would that give Ahab's confidence? You see the dilemma? So it seems as if what Isaiah is intending here, God is intending through Isaiah, as if its fulfillment was in the days of Ahaz and not speaking of the Messiah. Now, I would argue to, to you and to the skeptic that this prophecy actually has a dual intention. And we see this all the time in Old Testament prophecy. Mountaintops of prophecy, dual fulfillment, dual intention, that a prophet can be speaking of something in his own day or in the immediate future. And yet, in the unfolding plan of God, there is even a greater fulfillment much later on. A fulfillment that that fulfills the, the very details of this. Now, that brings us to the second problem that is raised, and, it, and it's connected to the first. The first one is that this prophecy only dealt with something in Ahaz's day. Here's the second thing that most that some people raise as an objection to Matthew using this prophecy. That the word that Isaiah used for virgin is the Hebrew word Alma. And that it doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. like We think of a virgin. But it can mean, it can be translated, a young maiden. That it was just used to describe somebody who was sexually mature of marriageable age. And it didn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not she had known a man. Now, when I was a brand new Christian and I was at Bible college, I met somebody who was a skeptic of the New Testament. And he said to me on one occasion, he said, you understand that the whole virgin birth thing never actually happened the way Scripture said it happened. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, Isaiah's prophecy, the word that Isaiah used there, it doesn't mean virgin. It doesn't mean a woman who's never known a man. It just means a young maiden. But Matthew saw that and he translated it virgin. So this whole thing kind of got caught up in the, the history of everything. And you know, people just sort of adopted it. And he created this myth of the virgin birth from a word in Isaiah that doesn't necessarily mean virgin. Now as a brand new Christian at the time, I had just found out that the book of Matthew even existed. Let alone studying anything about that. And here was somebody telling me that Isaiah's prophecy used a word that doesn't necessarily mean virgin. And you know it's true. It's true. The word Alma can be translated young maid. And guess what? It can also be translated virgin. Just because a word can be translated some way doesn't mean necessarily translate it that way. It can be translated young maiden. Most of the time in the Old Testament, out of the seven times that the word is used, it can only mean virgin because of its context. So you determine the meaning of the word by the context in which it occurs. It can be translated young maiden. and have nothing to do with virginity whatsoever. But most of the time that the word is used, it does refer to a virgin. Now Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, when he quotes Isaiah chapter seven fourteen, he's writing not in Hebrew, but in Greek. And he uses the Greek word parthenos. And guess what the word parthenos means? It only has one meaning. It doesn't mean young lady. It doesn't mean somebody of marriageable age. It has one meaning and one meaning only. Virgin. So as Matthew looked back at Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew said, here is what the Holy Spirit intended in Isaiah, it was a virgin who would conceive and bear a son. And this is where we get a dual fulfillment. In Isaiah's day, there was a young, a young woman who bore a son. And he was called Emmanuel. And before he was two years old, those two kings in the alliance fell apart. But in the grander scope of God's redemptive plan, there was an even greater fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin when she conceived and bore a son, and what she conceived was of the Holy Spirit. There is, This is a historical event, it is a redemptive event, and it is a prophetic event. So there's no need to doubt, because of what skeptics say, who doubt the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was born of a virgin. Because it is a historical event, you and I can understand and know and believe and have confidence that what God has recorded in His Word is true. And we can bow the knee to it, and we can bow the knee of our reason and our rationalism and our human thinking to that truth, Because it is a redemptive event in bowing the knee, we can have confidence that God is doing something through that event, that it is tied to the redemption of his people, that God will save his people from their sins because a a son of God was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life so that he could die on a cross and provide righteousness for us and take our sin unto himself and bear the penalty so that in believing upon him we might have eternal life. And it is a prophetic event giving us the confidence and reassuring us that God who promises what he will bring to pass always brings to pass exactly what He has intended. He has fulfilled the prophecy. And so as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a virgin birth that was historically unfolded in history because God had it in His redemptive plan and He predicted and prophesied it all along so that we could have confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Scripture which describes what He has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for the truth of the virgin birth and what it means for our salvation, what it means for our righteousness before You, that is a gift to us by your grace and through your Son. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that our Savior is who he claimed to be, that he is the pure, sinless, spotless Son of God who died on behalf of his people. Thank you that you have promised to save your people from their sins so that we might have eternal life. And we look forward to the day when the bridegroom will come back and take us to be with himself to the place which he has prepared for us. Thank you for these these elements of our hope and for the gospel itself, which is such a precious treasure and joy for your people.